My name is Justin McClude. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're doing an episode on Usman Semben. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about the man who is still probably the best known African auteur and a man commonly regarded as the father of African cinema. Even though that he always tries to throw that label away and say, no, I'm just trying to make movies that will speak to an African audience. I don't want to be just like the international African director. I want to be a movie making films for an African audience. Nevertheless, uh, he's from Senegal, which shortly after its decolonization, shortly after uh, France left in 1960, uh, he was the first filmmaker there to make a feature length film. And he made it out of stray, like 35 millimeter film that he was given by friends in Europe. Had you had any experience with Usman Semban uh, before this? None. Absolutely none. <laughs> uh, have you had much experience with African cinema before this? I've tried. But it's one of the world cinemas that is very, that is easy to bounce off of. Like, there's no, like, canon in the way that you go to Hong Kong cinema, and it has this, like, big fans, and there's a whole list of movies that people will tell you to check out first. Yeah, it's hard to know where to go. I, I had seen some Semban because when I was in undergrad, I took a cinema and authorship class, and one of the several auteurs that was taught in that class was Sem Ben. So I'd seen Black Girl and Chado and Hala like 12 or 13 years ago. And I didn't remember them very well at all. And I was very young and didn't understand the context for the film. This is not like Scorsese. Where are the crazy camera moves? How could this be an auteur? Exactly. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I recognized that he was an auteur, but... I was very excited to return to Semben for this episode and discover him anew. And I'm very glad I did, because as is sometimes the case when we're exploring a difficult, intimidating topics, one of the pleasant surprises I found this week was how enjoyable a lot of his movies are. Oh, his movies are great. And yeah. he made so many different kinds of movies as well. Near the late uh, period of his career, he started making almost like light romantic comedies. But earlier on, you know, the one that he's most famous for is Black Girl, which came out in 1966. And this is the one that when you hear his name, people talk about. It's small. It's an hour. It's compact. It gets its message right across. And it makes sense that this is the one that would pop for an international audience. It's on the Criterion channel, so you have no excuse not to watch it. Mm -hmm. uh, the title character is named Doyana. She's a poor girl who's traveled from Senegal to France to be a babysitter for a bourgeois white family. Uh, and I will be the annoying guy at the party and say here that the French French title of the film, La Noire de is actually kind of like wordplay, where it's the black girl of, so it could be where she's from, and it could also mean who possesses her, because the title has dot 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 in it, which clearly there's no easy way to translate that, so it just turns into black girl. The time frame of the movie uh, shifts back and forth from, you know, flashbacks in present day. We see her in Senegal, where she's chosen by this uh, French family, basically for her docility. And when she arrives in France, first of all, the couple has uh, the ancient tribal African mask hung on the wall. Which I feel like every adult in the 90s had on their wall. <laughs> like It signals their sort of liberal curiosity about other cultures. Uh, that curiosity, of course, does not extend to the servant they now have in their home. She's used basically as a slave, sometimes as a prop to amuse guests. She's hired as a babysitter, but she doesn't do a whole lot of babysitting. She does a lot of cleaning and cooking. Now, the construction of the film, I think, is the reason that it worked as well as it did for me, because one of the reasons I didn't check out this film is when it's discussed a lot, it's like, oh boy, read this plot synopsis. It's a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> and it is kind of oppressive in a way. 
way, but the way that it's kind of built, Samben uses narration of the titular girl to kind of give her humanity. And through the flashback structure, it doesn't turn into kind of a Haneke style kind of like <laughs> punishment where you see, oh, I understand this person. She gets to have a life beyond being in this prison where she's trapped. And by cutting between both of them, it makes the kind of like just miserable experience you have worse, but it also allows you into understanding who she is. There's a lack of fussiness to all three of the films I watched this week, both in their style and their content. Like stylistically, a movie like Black Girl is very austere. Perfectly suits this movie, I think. The black and white photography and the sort of sparseness of the mise-en-scene to use a highbrow word. They really create a sense of the apartment as like a prison. And I think that style goes hand in hand with the fact that the ideas that he expresses in the films, he's very direct with them. Mm -hmm. Like when he uses symbolism, it's big, obvious symbolism. I don't mean that in a bad way, because like... There are lots of ways that he is subtle and nuanced, like in his characterization, like in some of his storytelling strategies. But like his ideas are sort of unmistakable. Even in Black Girl, like her employment, like her, the people that have hired her are not like a beating her. But it's even worse because it's this is the way the colonialism like breaks the people down, which is it's not necessarily like these big, broad gestures. It's calling them names, calling them lazy, like do this, do that, just a control that goes beyond just shackles around their arms and legs and one that is completely destructive like it is to the main character of this film. A little bit about Semben's life. He was born in 1923 in a small village in Senegal, had no TV growing up, grew up listening to his grandmother's stories of African life, which ended up being very influential to him. He grew up under French colonial rule. So during the short amount of time he went to school, uh, he heard a lot about French history. In his late teens, he discovered African history and African culture. Uh, By the way, much of what I know about Semben comes from a 2015 documentary called Semben, which is well worth watching. In his early adult life, he traveled to Marseille, where he did manual labor. And it's here where he made a lot of discoveries, both in terms of art and politics. Well, yeah, he joined the union and organizing, and he also joined the Communist Party. And I do think the fact that he was a communist is very important because in all of the films, class is a very important dimension. Like in Black Girl, the lead character is being paid for her labor, but she's a wage slave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has talked about how joining these parties also opened up to him these worlds of art and literature, that he was given access to these libraries to discover stuff that he hadn't been able to just kind of absorb when he was a child. So during his time as a manual laborer, there was a period where he pulled something in his back, had a very severe back injury, so he was uh, bedridden for six months. And during that time, he talked about he really discovered a lot of European art and culture, everything from Mozart to Shakespeare, you know, did the canon. And we're talking about him as a filmmaker, but he's also a pretty famed novelist as well. Well, it was because during this period where he's learning about the canon, he realizes uh, nobody was telling the stories of Africa. So he said, I'll be the one I'll use this knowledge to tell African stories. And, you know, he made his first book and it made a very substantial impact. And what's interesting about him as a novelist is that he actually went to filmmaking because the 
people that he was trying to communicate with, a lot of them are illiterate. Mm -hmm. And he thought, well, movie is an international language that the visuals are able to convey stuff that words cannot. And I will be able to reach a bigger audience to do so. And I was not surprised to learn in the early 60s, he actually went to Moscow to study filmmaking before he made Black Girl. That's right. Uh, did he have a scholarship or something? Yeah, like he that? went to Gorky Studios in Moscow under the tutelage of Soviet director uh, Mark Donskoy to learn how to use the camera, how to utilize film. And he was even using like the crappiest cameras to do so. And that's kind of like a theme you see like in the movie making, even that documentary you mentioned in the behind the scenes footage. They're using gigantic blimp cameras, ones that are super loud, so loud you actually can't even record on set audio and they're heavy and big and you have to cover them with stuff. But this is the only thing that he could use. And that's how he made the movies. I mean, when I talk about the sort of austere direct style that he used i'm sure a lot of it was dictated by the equipment that he used but, yes uh, i can't even imagine like if you're shooting somewhere with no electricity you would have to bring a generator and you it would be loud and it would be so complicated but he went out and he did it when we talk about Semban as the father of african filmmaking mm -hmm. as as he is said to be i mean a lot of it was just that like nobody had the resources like certainly the french were not paying the local the locals to make well films. before africa was liberated in 1960, they were banned from making movies. So it was only afterwards that he stepped up because he's like, okay, now there's an opportunity to finally put movies out into the African cultural sphere. And there weren't a lot of people aside from him who could do it because like, obviously there weren't a lot of people who could do it. People didn't have access to the money. And, and the he had the advantage because he had uh, experience like being in France. He went to Russia. I mean, another uh, filmmaker that we talked about before, Melvin Van Peebles, he also became a filmmaker in in France. That's where he made his first movie because he couldn't do it anywhere else. So Black Girl is kind of the unquestionable canonical classic that he has. It's the one that's in the Criterion Collection. He made a lot of other movies, though, uh, one of which we watched this week called Hala from 1975. And Hala, what will strike you right away when you see it is that it's a little bit like shaggier than Black Girl. That kind of formalist control of Black Girl and of his second film, Mandabi, isn't quite there. It's almost as if he's going for a more like, you are there feel the camera's always a little bit wobbly when it's <laughs> capturing the images first of all it's over two hours mm -hmm. so it it definitely is yeah as you say shaggier than black girl which is like black girl's a diamond bullet of a movie uh hala is also in color and you know i like the way it looks mm -hmm. I, I i think it's i think it's pleasing but it, it, it feels like a 70s regional movie if you want to think of like an aesthetic yeah it, it takes a certain amount of adjusting to but like once you're with it i think i think it looks uh quite pleasing Anyway, the film opens right as French colonial rule of Senegal is ending. The opening scene basically announces what's up. We see the Chamber of Commerce. It's all white people. They are uh, ordered to leave. They're all replaced by black businessmen. And all the black businessmen get a case full of money. From white businessmen <laughs> that come into the offices. So that's the thesis of the film. Basically. Yeah, not subtle. Right away from the beginning, you get it. Like You <laughs> kick out the white people, replaced by other white people who then corrupt the people that have taken power. Again, very important to know that Simban was a communist. Yes, <laughs> and it's a theme throughout all of his film as well. The protagonist is El Haji, who is one of these businessmen. He lives large. He's getting married to his third wife. And by the way, it's important to know that he's still married to the other two wives. It's actually discussed right off the top where he's like, this is part of my religion. When we took over, <laughs> we were able to keep this. I get to have three wives. <laughs> but now it's time for a newer, younger model. And he's bought her with money that he's made selling rice on the black market. So he's wildly corrupt. His new wife is a stunner. Shirley. 
surely any man of flesh and blood would be excited to have sexual relations with such a woman. But uh oh, this is the crux of the film. Our hero cannot get a boner. That's right. We see him the morning after the wedding night. <laughs> Just hands in his head. Ashamedly and reveals. The women come in. They're like, did you do it? Did you? Did they check the bed for blood because she's a virgin. There's nothing. And they're like, what's going on? His, I thought you were a man. His new mother-in-law starts haranguing him. Yes. Like, how can you look at this woman? How can you not perform? And, you know, this is a very funny movie, but it's more dryly funny than you might expect from a movie with this premise. Like, there are certain scenes like that that have the energy of kind of like a Senegalese Elaine May movie. <laughs> Absolutely. I was thinking of like Elaine May, Albert Brooks, just like on that wavelength. As it rolls on, it is kind of shaggy. You, you will cut to like his children doing something. He has a very rebellious daughter who doesn't think her father is representing the revolutionary spirit that he should. There are also just lots of scenes of the community. Mm. You see uh, Senegal's new rulers who, you know, they announce that they're committed to socialism, but like they're driving fancy cars and they're ordering the riffraff be removed from the streets. Yeah, can you just uh, get rid of all the homeless people and just drive them as far as you can? Drop them off, please. I just don't want to have to look at them anymore. Now, you could say that his impotence is symbolic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could say that it is uh, the impotence is the status quo. No boners under capitalism. That's right. And while he's trying to deal with this, I mean, all the films have all the films I saw, at least one of the subjects is like the clash between modernity and tradition. So, you know, here's a movie where it's like the modern Senegal, people have cars, they have TV sets, all of these modern conveniences have come in, but like they still use witch doctors, you know, they still have polygamy. Patriarchy is still like in full force. Hala is a spell that's been cast upon him and he wants to know who did it, who's keeping him from having these boners. But at the same time, it is like we said, very dryly satirical. There's a scene where one of the wives like looks at the uh, wedding cake, which is a very kind of North American style one with two little white people on the top. <laughs> and she picks it up and looks at it. She's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and as the movie goes on, he gets more and more desperate about doing anything to get his boner back until it leads to his complete destruction. His empire crumbles. And uh, can I spoil the last scene? Yeah, spoil the last scene. Yeah, sorry, just skip ahead, folks. Uh, it ends with him being spat upon on roundly by all the people he's wronged. <laughs> Which, a great ending. <laughs> Wish more movies ended like that. Ends with a freeze frame. And it's like, when we say spit, this is the grossest spit you've I mean, ever seen. <laughs> it looks like jism. I yeah. mean, come on. <laughs> he finally gets what he always wanted. Well, we're gonna skip ahead quite a bit to his last film. You know, there's a lot of interesting movies that he made between Hala and his last picture, but we're just skipping ahead because, listen guys, we only have a week to do these, so we <laughs> can know. watch all of them. Even though I was very interested in Khan the Tiroir from 1988, which is a dramatic movie about a bunch of Senegalese soldiers who, after I think they're they're coming back in, they were kept in essentially like a holding place, which looked like a prison with barbed wire, and they revolted when they were told that they were only going to be paid half of what the other white French soldiers were be, were making, which ended with a mutiny. They took them hostage. They made a deal with the French that they would be paid what they were promised. And then this is a based on a real life event. The uh, white French soldiers turned around and killed them all. And this film came out banned 
in France. It was essentially kind of like a stop on um, Semben's career for a long time. It was banned for 10 years wow. before it was able to play again. I wish I could watch the whole filmography. <laughs> yeah, but we can. But we can jump all the way to the end and watch Moulin Day from 2003, which, as Will said in his review, is the most uh, entertaining film about female genital mutilation that he's ever seen. Yeah, I mean, to say the subject of the movie is to make it sound unappealing. I mean, even the cover of the DVD of the Handed Online, it's like, you know, the kind of somber image that you would expect. Lots of good quotes about how it's an important film. Looks like a social issue movie. And at the top it says, two disc special edition. And I was like, is this a selling point? And you know, there are social issue movies that are like, sound like issues you might Mm. want to spend two hours in. And this one, female genital mutilation, bit of a tough sell. Uh, Nevertheless, this movie is hugely enjoyable. I mean, it is an entertaining crowd pleaser. Uh, Yeah, it's wonderful. And it treats the subject quite tastefully. And of course, it is it is an issue film. It's against the practice of female circumcision, but it's uh, more than just that. There's a whole world that the movie depicts. Yeah, that's like the jumping off point about what is the, the, you know, the levers and the way culture works. The man is dominant and the woman has to be subservient to him. And there's even like multiple characters, like there's an outsider figure, a son who comes in having been tutored in France, bringing with him some different ideas than the way that, you know, the village works. And then at the center of it all, you have a woman who's deciding, all right, no one come into this section. I'm protecting these four young girls who ran off when it was time for them to be purified. And that's genital mutilation, which in the movie, the elders say is Islam. It's part of that culture. It is not. It's something that, you know, even the woman says in the movie, she goes, we heard on the radio. It's not actually something that has to happen. It's just something that is the norm because it's been the norm for so long. So I'm sure you can hear a lot of the the threads, a mm-hmm. lot of common themes themes in his films converging here. It is set in a village where uh, female circumcision is sort of the unquestioned norm, but uh, the lead character, Colet, I think is her name, yeah, uh, who is one of three wives to her husband. Uh, she is unusual for having spared her daughter from the practice. And it was a big deal that she said, nope, she's not going to be circumcised. It was a big deal. And her daughter, who is now fully grown, regrets it or has misgivings about it because when you haven't had the procedure in this community, uh, your prospects go down. You're in a lower caste. That's right. Now, she is engaged to this character, Ibrahima, who's a young, well-to-do man who's like been off to the city. He's been educated. He's learned the ways of the world. He's he's fine with it, but he's got pressure, too. He's got his father saying to him, you can't marry a girl like this. Like, what are you, what are you doing? There's television, there's radio that's in this community uh, that are bringing these, these new ideas that the elders don't want the women hearing about. And it's a thing like we talked about in the last movie, that all these different threads are all intermingling until it reaches the big climax where, you know, things have gotten to a point where it starts with, all right, I'm protecting these four young girls, but then it builds and builds as you see all these conversations which are just men being shitty (laughs) like that i want to be in control i want it to be this way but through organization all the people coming together you can fight against that yeah and you know even describing it this way like that 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 is totally what happens in the movie that's the arc of the movie and the film is very direct in its political message but you know again all the characters are very human Mm -hmm. even the even the less sympathetic characters are very human you sense that he has 
Simban has a love for the community, has empathy for the characters, and the problems in the movie are obviously systemic, but that doesn't mean the characters are speechifying about these problems. Uh, yeah, like it's not as know? didactic as it could have been because of his uh, his novelistic approach to it. Yeah, and it's it's like a portrait of a community, mm-hmm. you know? It's like the movie, It's again, this one's over two hours too, so it breathes. Mm-hmm. Like it has a very mellow pace and you spend a lot of time with characters, you know, a lot of time on scenes that are not about this issue. They're just characters interacting with each other, the goings on of the village. But that's so important because without that, it would feel like a didactic screaming in your face motion picture Mm -hmm. instead of like, oh, this big main issue is affecting these people, which we have gotten to know. They're kind of little interactions, little moments, little glances. That's what is the emotional meat of this picture. And again, when I'm saying all this stuff, it sounds like it's very weighty and it's not because it's very light and you're going into this village and the way that they do things. And there's a lot of love and appreciation. It feels like an old man's movie, you know? It's it's by someone with a lot of patience and a lot of empathy that's been accumulated over time. I was interested in the fact that he never took the jump to digital. Like, this was his last picture, and I wonder how his movies would have been different if he had been able to kind of absorb that filmmaking style. Because it's such a weight to have to shoot on film, and he talks a lot about he would have made way more movies than he did, but it was so difficult to get the funds to shoot these kind of pictures. I mean, I'm sure he died before digital completely overtook film. Mm-hmm. You know, Mulade played at the Cannes Film Festival. Obviously, it was going to, you know, show on the dominant medium of the time. But yeah, I imagine if he had access to digital, he, he would have used it. I yeah. mean, uh, not to say that he didn't care about aesthetics. He obviously did. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think ultimately he cared about getting it done. And I was fascinated that his later films are much more mellow affairs. Like I said, the one before this is almost a romantic comedy mm-hmm. about a woman running a gas station and, you know, how difficult it is for her to be like kind of an owner and a person in power uh, when it comes to all the men around her and that there would have been an evolution if you could have kept making films to get into this like oh I'm figuring it out that crowd pleasing angle unfortunately he never got to make that many but Mulade is a great kind of final statement and I would love to fill in all the blanks in between Black Girl and his last film and I would like to fill in some more of the blanks of African cinema in general because I mean we are talking about a whole continent yes (laughs) and and oh man, I it's so tough though. Like I, there's I, so much movies out there. I, don't I know. know. It's like what's the canon? And it's you know sitting down and going, all right, these don't necessarily have to be kind of like homework. I'm sure there's tons of entertaining popular films out there that we can just go and check out. But it's just about, I guess, yeah, us doing the work yeah. and getting out there to watch them. Anyway, uh, the email's open. Please send us recommendations. So as speaking of usual, emails, yeah, yeah, you can contact us at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from nick olson and he goes dear justin and will thanks for the podcast over the last year or so since i started listening you've exposed me to a lot of exciting films i've loved both highbrow miklos yankos and lowbrow the puniverse with that <laughs> that's said, albert pune <laughs> yeah that's right finally both of them in the same sentence with that said i'd like to suggest you tackle a set of films famously unexciting and middlebrow i refer of course to can you take a guess will what are the most middlebrow uh you know important films you can think of merchant ivory exactly hey i got it (laughs) the merchant ivory productions i feel like everyone had an idea of what these films are before they see them a kind of stuffy period piece prestige film made to sell tickets to the senior citizen matinee crowd and win awards i recall my mom checking out vhs tapes of some of their films from the library when i was a kid both of these things steered me away from actually watching them for a while those early impressions i had of their work are not entirely inaccurate but i finally saw a couple recently and damn it i found myself taken with how sensitively directed intelligently written and nice to look at 
that they both were, especially compared to the sort of directors who make those types of film now, people like maybe Joe Wright or Tom Hooper. <laughs> is this a cinematic legacy worth remembering? Have these kinds of prestige period pieces gotten worse since Merchant Ivory's dominance in the field? Is there anything to be said for being the best at that kind of thing? Anyway, it probably wouldn't be any less exciting to prepare for than your Stanley Kramer episode. Best wishes, Nick. I would say it was Stanley Kramer, though. We got to watch It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah, that's true. I remember Stanley Kramer actually, I don't want to say I was pleasantly surprised because there were some, you know, there were some less good ones in there, but mm. Judgment at Nuremberg was pretty good. I don't know. Now, but I love this idea of Merchant Ivory, though. Let's We should do them. Have you seen any Merchant Ivory films? Uh, no, I've never seen Howard's End or uh, what else did they do? I only saw one that's a production of theirs, but one they didn't direct, one of the rare ones they didn't, The Deceivers okay. with Pierce Brosnan. I sent you some photos when I was watching oh, the film. he's in Brownface. He's in Brownface for like 90% of the movie. I would love to explore because, I mean, obviously I have, I've avoided those I'm movies. I'm shocked because that's like Woody Allen, Merchant Ivory. They're like two faces of the same coin when it comes to what? adult films Woody in the funny. 90s. I know. But you talked a lot about wanting to do things that felt adult. I would have thought that Merchant uh, Ivory would have been something that you went to. I mean, I need a little sugar with the medicine, <laughs> yeah, you like, know? Saturday Night Live, feel the adult, there's laughs. Merchant Ivory, not so much. But yeah, that's definitely going on the list. It's never been on our list either. I, I don't think we've ever considered it. Yeah, I don't think in all the time I've known you, the words Merchant Ivory have never been mentioned between us. So we should do it. <laughs> I mean, though, they get released like every couple of weeks, it seems like one of those Cohen Blu-rays, like very expensive. It's been remastered and they went to cinemas like that one I mentioned, The Deceivers. It played in cinemas again. No one said anything about Pierce Brosnan's brown face. <laughs> wow. I guess there's an audience for them. Yeah. Maybe they're just like, oh, Merchant Ivory. I guess that's important, right? Well, thank you very much for that letter. And our next one is from Blaze Man. And he goes, I've got into your podcast and totally caught up on every episode over the last few months. So many movie podcasts are just two white guys talking about movies, but I have to say you guys run the best of them. I just re-listened to your episode number 100. Re-listen? Wow. <laughs> Always shocking. The Jackie Chan one. In it, you, Justin, share that Jackie and Sammo have both spoken about wanting to be Robert De Niro on the beach. This is something that Jackie would say in interviews all the time. Robert De Niro on the beach. And Sammo Hung would say it as well. What movie was that? And you ask, what Robert De Niro beach movie? movie are they talking about? I happen to know, and I hope no one has answered this already in the intervening years. I gotta say, they haven't. In 1969, De Niro shot a movie called Samsung. I don't know what this movie was about since I haven't seen it, but 10 years later after De Niro's star rose, the director mixed footage from that movie in with new footage for a 1979 movie, The Swap. De Niro, of course, did not come back for The Swap, so instead the movie is about Sam's brother, Vito. The Swap has become legendary in my circle of friends ever since I found a DVD of it in a box in my house, mostly for its very poor filmmaking. It is here in the SWAT Samsung that you can see De Niro running on the beach in slow motion, <laughs> seemingly playing cops and robbers with himself. You'll see him pointing finger guns in one direction, then cut to him facing the other direction, dramatically throwing himself into the sand. It's very bizarre, even for the movie that it's in. With that answered, another question immersion. Why do Hong Kong celebrities know about a miniscule budget 1969 indie film starring a pre-stardom Robert De Niro? I've actually found the SWAT on DVD another time since I first discovered it, published by a completely different label, so maybe the swap exists in Chinese bootlegs sold in Hong Kong. I hope I've taught you something you didn't know from one fan to another who's grateful of what you do. Also, the funniest thing Will has ever said is the words cock resplendent. Thanks for your time, please. <laughs> cock resplendent. Now, what context was that? I don't know. Uh, probably a porn film of some kind. Sure. Probably when we were doing Wakefield Pool. Now, not only do I know this movie, I did a podcast on this movie on Loose Cannons because early canon films released it. So 
though. So can you vouch for it? Did you like it? <laughs> no, it was terrible. But And I remember nothing about it. And uh, it probably didn't trigger when I saw Robert De Niro on the beach. But if you search Loose Cannons, The Swap, you'll get a podcast episode of me and Matthew Kumar talking about this movie. All right, I'll listen to it later. Uh, what a delight that letter was. I feel like Robert De Niro, he must have been on the beach in like Awakenings or something like that. You know, that Robin Williams film? Yeah. Like That's what I think of like dramatic on the beach Robert De Niro pictures. I don't have anything to add to that, but I do remember, you know, Rotten Tomatoes used to have a column called like five favorite movies where they would ask some celebrity their five favorite movies. Oh, I know what you're going to talk about. Jackie Chan, right? <laughs> Jackie Chan gave his five favorite movies and I don't remember all five, but I remember one of them was Police Story. Oh, Paul Schrader Baller Roof. One of them was Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. He thought the special effects were really good. One of them was An Inconvenient Truth. He thought the message was very important. <laughs> and, all right, and Jackie. He's, and he's right. Yeah. The other one was Analyze This. <laughs> For Robert De Niro, he said. So that's that's Jackie's favorite Robert De Niro movie. <laughs> Analyze this. Maybe he's running on the beach on that one at some point. I mean, we're very excited for an upcoming Jackie Chan is a horse trainer of some kind movie. Oh, well, that's Jackie's next movie, Ride On, which yeah. will be opening in the People's Republic pretty soon. And I'm sure, you know, it'll open at our local Young and Dundas Cinema as well. And so if you have any questions or comments, you can send us to us at Podcast at gmail.com. What are we talking about on our Patreon this week, Will? I'm amazed we've never talked about this before. We have a Patreon episode about 3D movies. So me and Will watch a 3D movie, uh, Revenge of the Shogun Women, and we just use that as a jumping off point to talk about, you know, the 3D phenomenon in general, you know, where it came from, Robot Monster, where it ended up, terribly. We do it all in a smooth 25-minute package. It's essentially like a regular episode. <laughs> well worth the money, folks. That's right. Only $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Become a patron now. So next week on the podcast, listen, we've been doing, you know, homework episode. Two words. Hoo-ha. <laughs> yeah. Next week, it's Al Pacino. <laughs> uh, it's not Al anymore. It's, it's Dunk. dunk. <laughs> Are you a fan of Al Pacino? Yeah, sure. I mean, who isn't? I mean, people who have seen the last 10 years of his movies. Oh, come on. I, you know, I still I still like him. I still... I mean, uh, Al Pacino, that article that came out where he was like, listen, I just, I just take those bad movies because I want to see if I can, like, make them just okay from my performance. A little movie called Jack and Jill. Yeah, that's right. So what do we need to watch? I guess we got to eat our vegetables and watch, like, um, Dog Day Afternoon or... <laughs> <laughs> eat our vegetables. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hey, that's a fun movie. So, okay, let's watch Dog Day Afternoon. Why don't we watch one of those movies he directed, like Looking for Richard or something <sighs> like that? Okay, no. Okay, yeah. Okay, so does he you... star in those movies? Yeah, he does. Okay. But you want to have fun, though, right? Mm, okay, maybe a little bit of fun. Okay, we can watch fucking Scarface instead. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we can. Should we watch a bad one? Yeah, like The Hangman or something like that? I don't even know what that okay. is. Okay, here's what I would... Oh, uh, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen Scent of a Woman. <laughs> I've never seen it either. Let's do Scent of a Woman. His that's classic role. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. But yeah, like those Millennium films that he makes. I've seen like, 88 Minutes. Yes. <laughs> and I recently saw the David Mamet classic about Phil Spector that Al Pacino started was oh, on your list. <laughs> what an atrocity. <laughs> But yeah, I'm excited to talk about Al. Uh, very uh, dynamic actor. I want Tracy dead. You know, you have to understand that he's doing coke off screen in all of his roles <laughs> to explain why he's so big. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, my name's Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. If you're a fan of the Important Cinema Club, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us get new listeners, helps us get more attention, which helps us get even better guests to interview. Who's bigger than Leonard Malton? Well, we won't know unless we get enough reviews on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you are a Patreon subscriber, thank you very much. And we have some new people that I'd like to thank, including Henry, Brian Venditti, One True Patron, Griffin Meyer, Adam Hart, Thomas Playfair, Treadman252, Jacob Richardson, Matt Stratton, and Don Picton. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. Me and Will, we sat down and we took a bullet. You know, we like to watch movies that are thrown in the garbage. See if we can appreciate them again. Especially the ones that have no fan base. And by that, you know, maybe we want a good laugh. Go, I can't believe we watched this movie. Which is exactly what prompted us to sit down and watch the completely forgotten movie 43. Yeah, sometimes I come to Justin's home and we're going to watch a movie together. And Justin will say, I know what we're watching. We're watching movie 43. And it's like, yeah, of course. I'm shocked that you hadn't seen it. Because that seems like one that's so atrocious that you're like, I guess I'm going to watch this. So I saw the other one Mm. around the time this came out. This came out in 2013. Around the time this came out, there were two like sketch comedy movies that got apocalyptic reviews. The other one was called Inappropriate Comedy. Mm -hmm. And it was by the ShamWow guy. (laughs) That's right. And it had Adrian Brody as Flirty Harry, who was a gay, dirty Harry. It had Rob Schneider as a movie critic who who reviews pornos. It had a parody of Jackass called Blackass, which is just just racism. (laughs) I mean, you dodged a bullet because wasn't the Onion movie it came out around then as well. Oh, no, I saw that one too. <laughs> yeah, you did. I mean, that has the great, um, is it Steven Seagal as <laughs> cock puncher? <laughs> yeah, that was one kind of funny bit. But anyway, inappropriate comedy. A friend and I watched it and we made it about 60 minutes into the 80 minute <laughs> runtime because like it just has four bits and it keeps repeating over and over so again. So lots of flirty hair. He keeps coming back, right? He keeps coming back. So I felt myself going insane. Now, I feel like we've talked about this before, but the anthology comedy movie is always bad. Like uh, my dad. K- Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. Yeah, that one's pretty funny. It, it's hit or miss, though. Like, there's some segments that are like, eh, that's because that's the nature of the way that they're built. What about something like a Monty Python movie? Yeah, that's like the meaning of life because it's like bit after bit. But those, I don't consider those anthology movies. I think of stuff like, oh, God, like The Groove Tube. That was one that okay. like, you know, my dad was a big fan of that. Saw it projected on 35 millimeter uh, during a movie marathon. I was like, P.U. So movie 43 which came out in 2013, was the brainchild of Peter Fairley. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of comic vignettes with an absurdly stacked cast. The first vignette has Hugh Jackman and Kate Winslet. And Justin is smiling already because he (laughs) remembers what it is. Hugh Jackman plays a very handsome man out on a date with Kate Winslet. He seems like the perfect guy, takes off his scarf. He has testicles on his neck. That's the joke. There's nothing else. <laughs> like, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit, too. It just kind of ends. Well, it, but the joke builds because, of course, he's like accidentally dips it in the butter. Yeah, the joke <laughs> is that he doesn't notice it. He doesn't comment on it. Nobody else comments Nobody on else it. Nobody else comments on it. And so me and Will are sitting there and watching this and it ends and we're like, I don't know, that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, well, I was laughing all the way through it. And then the next one starts. Next one is a bit where Naomi Watts and Liev Schreiber play parents who are homeschooling their son and they want to give him the full high school experience. So they like like beat him up and like, yeah they uh make fun of him i don't want to reveal all the good jokes because oh, i mean there's th- a joke one, when you hear that segment you're like they're not gonna go there are they they do watch it for this yes. this is insanely funny Sh- uh, Liev schreiber and naomi watts are hilarious mm-hmm. uh, so i watch this and i'm like man i know two for two so far <laughs> and then the movie keeps going 
keeps being funny. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing at almost every second. What did people, what, what do you think was the visceral reaction that people had? Like they hated it so much. There's a bit where Chris Pratt, the whole segment is that he's going to shit on Anna Faris. I mean, that's funny in of itself because she asked him to shit on him. But what's funny about it is he's then at a barbecue and they talk about how he should do it. <laughs> I mean, I, so why didn't people like it? Like, you look at Letterboxd, and there's no defenders of this movie. It's like one star, half a star, one star, one star. I, I don't know. I mean, I know I know why critics didn't like it. Yes. I think critics just don't like toilet humor in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all toilet humor. That's all it is. So. Yeah, but I don't know. I have very rarely felt as removed from humanity <laughs> as I feel talking about this, because... I thought, again, there were some segments that were funnier than others. Yeah, some of them were like, meh. The uh, segment that Elizabeth Banks directed about periods, mm-hmm. I think, is a little weak. Yeah, it's all right. It has a couple laughs. I mean, a lot, like, it's Saturday Night Live skits, right? So sometimes it's like one joke, and that's it. And then, you know, it goes on too long. I, honestly, I think Movie 43 has, like, more laughs overall than the average Saturday Night Live episode. <laughs> I would so, agree like, with you. what's, what's I mean, the listen, problem? a whole segment about a giant naked woman iPod that the, <laughs> where the <laughs> vagina is is a fan, and people keep losing fingers, but the board of all male um, people are like, oh, we don't see what the problem is. And the main guy is Richard Gere, who seems like he doesn't even know he's in a movie. That's funny. <laughs> I, I thought I thought it was funny. There's the segment with Johnny Knoxville. And, <laughs> oh, that's the last one, isn't it? <laughs> oh well, I think there's one after that. But yeah, jo- oh, yeah. Johnny Knoxville and uh, uh, Sean William Scott, like who kidnap a leprechaun. I mean, <laughs> that's right. I Played know. by Gerard Butler. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm laughing. I'm I'm having a good time, mm. folks. Watch movie 43. That's <laughs> yes. if you take one thing from this episode. Do not email us and be like, it's not funny. You guys are wrong. Because I liked it. Oh, what we should also say is there are two versions of this movie floating That's around. That's right. Yes. So the one that played in American theaters, which we did not see, the framing device is... I think it's Dennis Quaid as a screenwriter and he holds Greg Kinnear hostage. Greg Kinnear plays a movie executive mm-hmm. and he's held hostage and, and yeah, Dennis Quaid keeps reading these like insane bits that he wants to make into a movie. The version we saw... Kind of bananas, the rapper. Segment that we saw. It's about kids who yes. are like on, they, on the dark web. Yeah, they like two friends trick a little brother into trying to search out movie 43. And it leads to the movie being an apocalyptic thing that, like, it jumps to the future. One of the kids masturbates to his mom, you know? <laughs> and it's just uh, a bananas wraparound story. Not very funny. When it started, me and Will were like, oh, boy, who are these three nobodies on screen? Right yeah, now? with this wraparound segment, I was settling in to not enjoy this movie at all. But then, won me over. Yep. Laughing. You know what? I feel like the wraparound segment... It was probably shot first, and then they got the Greg Kinnear, because they're like, we need some stars up here, because, like, who are these nobodies, right? But yeah, movie 43. Listen, we laughed. What else? I mean, we're guilty of laughing. (laughs) Chris Pratt being hit by a car, just shit splattering on the windshield. That's funny to me. I know funny, folks. (laughs) 